When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout, even Speaker McCarthy said their only goal is to burn the place down. And, and that's certainly not what our country needs right now. And, and to hurt our veterans and law enforcement and seniors and children with the government shutdown, you know, and, our, and put our military at peril. So we need a solution. Well, it's going to be hard to find that solution when you send everybody home for the weekend instead of sticking around to, you know, do the work that you were elected to do and that you get paid for with our tax dollars, Speaker McCarthy. I'll talk to Congressman Maxwell Alejandro Frost about that, as well as a major development from the White House today on gun violence. And later, Howard Stern has conservatives clutching their pearls by proclaiming himself woke and calling out a famous former friend for his sexist remarks. But we begin tonight with the right wing takeover of the U.S. Supreme Court. Thanks to ProPublica, Supreme Court members have drawn fresh scrutiny from some, for some ethical lapses. After the nonprofit media organization revealed how Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas accepted lavish trips from Republican billionaires that they failed to disclose. ProPublica reported, for example, that Justice Alito went on vacation with a billionaire Republican donor and failed to recuse himself from multiple cases involving that donor. And of course, there are all the goodies billionaire Harlan Crow has bestowed upon, Jaris, uh, upon Justice Thomas, from jaunts to his home with a private garden of evil, to buying Clarence's mother's house and making her his tenant while paying for his adopted son's education. These friends of the court are rich. We're talking folks with luxury yachts and billions at their disposal. And when you unpack the politics of being super rich and powerful in America, it's hard not to think about libertarian billionaires Charles and David Koch. David died in 2019, and his brother Charles, chairman and CEO of Koch Industries, is worth $55 billion, according to Forbes. The Koch network is a colossal, sprawling political machine that has transformed American politics, helping to propel the Tea Party takeover during the Obama years and fight any form of climate change legislation that would diminish the demand for the family product, oil, one of their lasting legacies is turning climate change denial into a mainstream Republican position. The network is sitting on a fortune backed by a deep pocketed by back deep pocketed donors who give at least $100,000 to attend secretive Coke gatherings, such as the one in the Coachella Valley in California, where donors rub elbows with powerful public officials. One year per pro per ProPublica, per the event was at the Renaissance Esmeralda Resort and Spa, featuring NFL Hall of Famer Deion Sanders, who was working with the Cokes on an anti-poverty and anti-poverty programs in Dallas. Also on the event's agenda was a new initiative focused on getting conservatives onto the Supreme Court and the federal bench. Of course, there's nothing illegal about an NFL star and a private citizen giving a talk to the Cokes. But that isn't where the story ends. When you think about the Supreme Court scandal and how conservative Supreme Court justices have sold access to the highest court in the land, one missing component has been the Koch brothers. That is, until now. Because who benefits the most from a Supreme Court justice's pro-wealth, pro-corporate, pro-oligarch decisions? 
The Koch brothers, of course, hands down. The ProPublica piece said that Thomas has attended at least two Koch brothers donor summits. It also exposed Clarence Thomas's personal relationship with the Kochs. According to the piece, their relationship developed over years during trips to the Bohemian Grove, the all-man retreat where $500 wine flows along with clam chowder and chili by the gallon. Tucked inside the Sonoma Valley, the Sonoma County Redwoods, says ProPublica, a member or his guest can wander from the Grove's shooting range to a lecture by Blackwater founder Eric Prince or mosey from a mint julep party to a performance by a symphony orchestra. More than one attendee recalled walking outside in the morning to find a former cabinet secretary who fell asleep, drunk in the grass. You see this photo? That's Clarence Thomas on the left, next to Ken Burns and Charles Koch in their man cave of sorts. Thomas went there for two decades, where he stayed in a small camp with Harlan Crow and the Kochs according to records and people who spent time with him there. Thomas attending Coke donor summits, the years-long personal relationship, all of this puts Thomas in the extraordinary and damning position of having helped a political network that has bought multiple, brought multiple cases before the Supreme Court, which is what this allyship and dark money scheme really boils down to. Almost 40 years ago, the case Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council directed courts to defer to reasonable federal agency interpretations of ambiguous statutes. It became one of the Supreme Court's most cited decisions, one that legal scholars lump in with Brown v. Board of Education and Roe v. Wade in terms of significance. The Koch Network has challenged Chevron in the courts. And now, in a case the Supreme Court will hear this coming term, a landmark pillar of SCOTUS history could be reversed, putting major health, safety, and environmental protections at risk. Another rare and curious development about the case is that in 2005, Clarence Thomas wrote the majority opinion in the case. But then, in 2020, he renounced his own earlier decision, writing that he determined that the doctor is unconstitutional after all, and who would benefit the most from a, remo- a reversal of Chevron? The Coke Network, of course. It's really the nail in the coffin, isn't it? The story of a Supreme Court justice whose corruption is so thorough, so complete, that he sold America out to the highest oily bidder. I'm joined now by Jesse Eisinger, ProPublica senior editor, and Ellie Mistow, justice correspondent for The Nation. Um, Great reporting once again by ProPublica. I want to ask you um, about just how long this relationship with the Cokes has lasted and how beneficial it seems to have been in the courts for the Cokes. That is to you, Jesse. Oh, I think he's muted. Oh, Excuse Jesse, me. got you muted. Sorry, I, I apologize. <laughs> um, thanks for the kind words about our reporting. Um, the relationship has lasted for decades now. Um, it uh, seems to have started through Harlan Crow, who's been a very close friend of Clarence Thomas's and took him to the Grove initially. Um, the thing that's really notable about this is that these relationships happened after 
Thomas came to the court. So they weren't friendships that he had from growing up. Of course, he grew up poor. Harlan Crow did not. The Cokes did not. Um, and uh, he didn't develop them in college. These were all <laughs> friendships uh, that he says are, you know, he's called Harlan Crow close friend, um, but they were developed after he uh, became a Supreme Court justice. And we think that's extraordinarily notable. It is. Uh, you know, uh, Ellie, this story has everything. Uh, it has Leonard Leo. It's got Harlan Crow, the guy with the uh, Garden of Evil. Of course, it's got the Cokes who've been missing from this up to now. And it's also got Jenny Thomas. Of course, it's got Jenny Thomas. Let me read a little piece of this. During um, the event, one of these events, um, the group announced a new initiative focused on getting conservatives onto the Supreme Court and the federal bench. The network, which had already given millions of dollars to Leonard Leo's Federalist Society, planned to mobilize its activists to buy advertisements to push senators to vote for President Donald Trump's judicial nominees. They appointed a former employee of Ginny Thomas, the justice's wife, to lead the effort. It's got everything, Ellie. And at this point, how do we conclude that the Supreme Court is anything other than a bought and paid for trifle of the super rich, or at least six of them or some of them? Yeah, look, I've been waiting for the Koch brothers to show up because anytime a public official goes out for auction in this country, the Koch brothers have a front row seat at Sotheby's, all right? So, like, you knew they were going to get involved in this story eventually. But here's the thing, Joy. Uh, ProPublica can keep dropping the people's elbow on Clarence Thomas until the cows come home. When are the regulatory agencies, when is Congress, when is the DOJ going to move on this man, right? Do the Koch brothers have to play Clarence Thomas in gold bars? Is that what it is that what it takes to get the Justice Department's attention? Because if it's so, then I'm sure that we can find some gold bars or some platinum um, ducats uh, that Thomas has, has as well. But whatever it's going to take, at some point, the DOJ and Congress need to investigate this man and bring him to heel because he's never going to stop. All right. That's the other. That's the thing that I think all of this ProPublica reporting has shown. It's not like Thomas is slowing down on the graft. He's going to keep going until somebody regulatorily stops him. It's an excellent point. Jesse Eisinger, has, has there been any contact from the DOJ uh, or members of Congress, any of the committees contacted ProPublica about, it, about these reports? Oh, uh, well, there have been no public uh, announcements of any uh, DOJ investigation. All we've really seen is the Democrats responding in Congress, and it's been pretty anemic. Um, they've yep. asked for Harlan Crow to come testify. They've asked for Leonard, Leonard Lito to come t testify. Both of them have declined, and they're in some kind of process of attempting to get them to come. Um, and, of course, John Roberts declined to come and testify about implementing a code of conduct or an ethics uh, ethics rules for Supreme Court justices. Now, as we point out in the story, they're not uh, required to adhere to any code of conduct. Um, the code of conduct only applies to lower court judges and mm -hmm. the Supreme Court justices make up the rules by themselves or they decide for themselves what's appropriate and what isn't. So, you know, what I think Clarence Thomas is in effect saying is, what is it about lifetime appointment that you guys don't understand? Because, um, you know, I think he's acting. He doesn't respond to our reporting. He doesn't respond to our questions. Um, he's made one statement this year. And so, you know, mm -hmm. he's acting with impunity and there's no reason to think uh, he has anything but impunity. 
Yeah, or if he was still invited to the cookout, it'd be, uh, who gonna check me, boo? Uh, Coke industry. Well, let me let read you what Leonard Leo had to say. Um, Justice Thomas attends events all over the country, as do all the justices, and I was privileged to join him. Justice Thomas has been a dear friend, only since he's been a Supreme Court justice, I should know. And I would never pass him an opportunity to help him share, in his own words, his lifetime accomplishment, just philosophy with new audience, all the necessary due diligence would form to ensure the justice tenants at the events of the blah, 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 blah. Let, Let's talk about what the Coke um, uh, Industries does, um, Jesse. Um, their opposition is to fair corporate taxation. They don't want to be taxed. They don't. They oppose climate change legislation. They oppose the Affordable Care Act. They support criminal justice reform. They are are. They support anti-gay political candidates. They support anti-abortion political candidates and judges. They wanted women to be forced to give birth. And of course, they oppose pretend critical race theory. Um, is there any reporting about what was discussed at these events when Clarence Thomas appeared and made his presence um, felt by um, his benefactors? Yeah, we were very clear. We don't know what Thomas was uh, talking about. Certainly not talking. Uh, we didn't know what he's talking about in any personal conversations. He did give some remarks in the 2018 uh, dinner. Um, that was an intimate dinner for the elite group of uh, Coke Network donors. Um, he has mentioned Chevron. Um, he talked about Chevron, which you referred to earlier, and said that he thought Alito had been coming around to his position, which, as you astutely noted, he had evolved. So Scalia and uh, Thomas had regarded deference from regulators as the appropriate ruling. Um, they supported Chevron initially. Chevron was a kind of Reagan era ruling um, when the regulators were softer. Um, as regulators have uh, discovered the power of regulation or they realized that regulators could actually develop spines and regulate, they turned against regulation. The Kochs did and Thomas did in this flip-flop. So we don't know what he was speaking about specifically, yeah. but they were about these issues. Are you as shocked as I am, Ellie, that it's Alito that has flipped because, I mean, the other kept man? Why not? Um, I want you to comment on that, but also on the Chevron case itself and what it would mean to have it overturned, because there is a case coming up that could gut it or overturn it. Yeah, so you're right to bring this up. And I want people to think about not what Thomas was talking about with the Koch brothers in 2018, but what was Thomas talking about this summer? Because again, it's not like the graft is stuff. When the Koch brothers called them up this summer, what were they talking about? And one of them is the Chevron case that you brought up. The Chevron case is what allows regulation, regulatory agencies like the SEC, the the, the computer, uh, the Consumer Fairness Bureau, um, the Environmental Protection Agency. It's what allows those agencies to regulate. Right. Because what they do is take laws of Congress and then apply them through the powers of the executive branch. Now, there are certain justices, Neil Gorsuch being the toppest among them, who don't think that the executive state, the administrative state, as we call it, should exist at all. And that's the <laughs> view that Thomas has evolved into. Right. So there's that case coming up. There's another case, Joy, coming up about the 16th Amendment and the right to have a federal income tax that is meant to preemptively kill the wealth tax. And I I promise you, I promise you, when the Kochs or Holler and Crow or any of these rich Republican donors got Clarence Thomas on the phone in his RV this summer, what they were talking <laughs> about was the 16th Amendment case so that they can preemptively kill the wealth tax before it even has a chance to pass. So this is very much, people need to understand, this is very much a live issue. 
We're not talking about history. We're talking about our future and how that future has already been paid for, how they've already put a down payment on what rulings we're supposed to get over the next two, three, four, five years. More oil walked out of the earth to increase climate change and less and less, if any, taxes on the super rich. Yeah, they've bought themselves a wonderful future for themselves. Uh, the rest of us, we're out of luck. Jesse Isinger, uh, great job at ProPublica. Ellie Mastal, my friend, Thank always you. appreciate and appreciate having you on. Um, coming up next on The Readout, Speaker McCarthy and his caucus <laughs> are taking the looming shutdown very, very seriously. You can tell by how they all took the entire weekend off to attend fundraising barbecues back home. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. As the country hurdles toward a potential government shutdown, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his Republican conference have gone AWOL. Right now, Congress is home for a long holiday weekend, and they won't be back in session until Tuesday, which means they will only have four working days to pass anything and then get whatever that may be through the Senate and signed by the president. But as the MAGA wing of the caucus essentially holds the country hostage over demands to stop aid to Ukraine and slash funding for the Justice Department because Trump wants them to and slash money for other domestic programs, it is important to note that if the government does shut down, a lot of regular folks will suffer. The Washington Post points out that millions of federal employees and active military service members will stop receiving paychecks, but many will be forced to work anyway. The most pivotal federal aid programs, including those assisting the victims of the deadly wildfires in Maui, could struggle to provide urgently needed support. Older Americans might not be able to obtain new Medicare cards or address other issues with their benefits. And if it were to persist long enough, the government may not be able to provide some poor families with childcare, nutrition assistance, housing vouchers, and college financial aid. Joining me now is Florida Democratic Congressman Maxwell Frost. Um, Congressman, um, thank you so much for being here. And uh, I, you are the perfect person to talk to about this today because you're a young guy who recently was in the real world, um, you know, struggling in the struggle with everybody else your age. Um, what do you make of the fact that Congress, who will still continue to get paid um, because statutorily they have to, but even their aides won't average about $45,000 a year. A lot of them won't get paid. And the fact that Kevin McCarthy has sent y'all home. Well, I think it shows exactly how Kevin McCarthy is governing, right? I mean, look, at the beginning of uh, the year, when I first got uh, uh, into Congress, we had a few days where we couldn't elect the speaker. And what I told everyone and what I'll say now is, are those days... Uh, are a microcosm of what's going on for the next two years in the United States Congress. Speaker Kevin McCarthy gave all of his power uh, 
to the far right wing extreme Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates branch of his party. And now he can't move. He can't do anything because he's the weakest speaker in the history of our country. And because he can't do anything, he had to send us home for the weekend. When coming up in just about a week, this government will shut down. It will be a McCarthy shutdown because he has positioned himself to be the weakest speaker we've ever seen. And so there's a lot of work to do. I, I do believe the government will shut down. And unfortunately, it's because of Kevin McCarthy. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you mentioned Matt Gates because people are accustomed to saying Marjorie Greene is his real boss. It's like Matt Gates right now is his real boss. Isn't Matt Gates running for governor in the state of Florida? Isn't that why he's doing this so that he can have commercials to run on Fox for governor? Of course. I mean, in a few months, when we look back at fundraising, we'll probably see that the two top fundraising points for Matt Gates will be the beginning of the year when he completely made a show out of the speaker's race. And now when he's making another show. And unfortunately, a lot of people use the business of Congress to up their profile, become more popular and raise money. And the people who um, who will be on the receiving end of that and who will, you know, it's to the detriment of the American people. So it's really unfortunate. But it's not just Matt Gates, right? He has a group that are standing with him. And so the speaker has limited amount of options. And what he should do is come to Democrats and see if he can cut a deal. But the problem with that is that Matt Gates and them will file a, a motion to vacate and he might lose his job. And so what's going on is we have a speaker who's not working day to day for the American people. He's working day to day just trying to keep his job. And that's no way that you can govern. I should note for our audience that back in 2019, when there was a government shutdown in January 2019, he literally said um, the, the Congress should not be dismissed. They should not go in for a three-day weekend. They should stay here and get the job done. He has changed his mind. I want to talk about somebody who is actually getting something done. Uh, I'm going to play this soundbite. This was something that happened because you haven't left town yet. You were in Washington today. Let's play a little of where you were. Do we have it? Oh, we may not have it. Every- uh, this is uh, element three for my for my wonderful uh, director. Do we have- Everyone should see it except mom and dad. Mom and dad, stand up. I want to, everybody to see the parents of this proud young new concert. <laughs> did a heck of a job. I don't know if people could see you standing up on the day as next to President Biden uh, as he announced this brand new federal office designed uh, for gun violence prevention. Uh, tell me what that meant to you, because we, we, we first met you as somebody who is an advocate for March for Our Lives and for uh, preventing your generation and those younger than you from uh, suffering from gun violence. What did that mean to you and your parents? And what does this, this new uh, administrative office mean to you? It means the world. And look, I've been working on this since before I got to Congress as the National Organizing Director of March for Our Lives. And even before that, the first bill I filed when I got to Congress was the Gun Violence Prevention, uh, a Gun Violence Prevention Office Act of 2023. And what it does is simple, create a federal office of gun violence prevention, because believe it or not, until today, we didn't have one. And two things. Number one, I knew it would be very difficult to pass this in the current Congress. And so the second goal was to provide a framework for the administration to just do it themselves because they have the power to do it. And today, President Biden announced historically, and I had the honor of, of being right by him and getting to speak there at the White House, um, that office will become a reality uh, because of the work of activists, organizers, because of the bill that I filed. You know, when I filed that bill very quickly, we got over eight 
80 co-sponsors spanning the spectrum, progressive, moderate in the Democratic Party. Senator Chris Murphy introduced it in the Senate. And today um, it is a reality via executive action. This is a good lesson in the fact that when you're in the minority and especially as a freshman, <laughs> the ability to impact big change sometimes is difficult and you got to be creative. you got to strategize and figure out how do we use the power we do have and Part of the power we have is in the administration. And so this office is going to be great um, working on a daily problem, working for daily solutions, and it's going to save lives. And I'm going to note for our audience that uh, Vice President Kamala Harris will be heading the officers, also an administrative leader of it. So at the very highest levels of the administration, they're putting real teeth behind uh, the attempt to stop gun violence. And you, young man, I'm sure your parents are very, very proud of you. You got a big win. Congratulations, Congressman Maxwell Frost of Florida. So there is something good coming out of Florida, y'all. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate you. All right. And coming up next, he woke up like this. Howard Stern proclaims he's proud to be woke. And conservatives cannot believe their ears. We'll be right back. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Thanks to people like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and others on the far, far right, the war on woke has continued to reach new, obscene, and ridiculous heights. Take, for example, their ongoing bloodlust to ban books across the country. Just last week, a Texas middle school teacher was fired after assigning her students to read a graphic novel adaptation of The Diary of Anne Frank. Yeah, the 12-year-old Holocaust victim. Apparently, it included passages Frank wrote at the time about female and male genitalia and her possible attraction to women. And then you have a Republican candidate for Missouri governor, State Senator Bill Eigel, who put on a demonstration of burning a stack of empty cardboard boxes, or what he called the woke liberal agenda, using an actual flamethrower. He then vowed if he was elected, he would do the same to what he refers to as woke pornographic books on the front lawn, that, and he would do so on the front, front lawn of the governor's mansion if someone tried to bring them into Missouri schools. Libraries are also a top target for the anti-woke mob. According to the American Library Association, book bans and attempted bans this year continue to hit record high, record highs, with a 20 percent jump in the number of unique titles involved. Those challenges are equally divided between school and public libraries. In response to all of this absurd anti-woke agenda from the right, leave it to shock jock Howard Stern to give some blunt truth after he was called out for being woke. By the way, I kind of take that as a compliment that I'm woke. I'll tell you how I. Um feel about it to me the opposite of woke is being asleep and if woke means i can't get behind trump which is what i think it means or that i support 
people who want to be transgender or I'm for the vaccine. Dude, call me woke as you want. I'm not for stupidity. Here, here. I'm joined now by Christina Greer, Moynihan, public scholars fellow at CCNY, and Kim Whitley, comedian and actress. Uh, thank you both for being here. Kim, you are new to the program. Welcome. I'm going to let you go first. Howard Stern is in the entertainment world. Uh, what do you make of his answer on woke and all the book burning and flamethrowing? Oh, absolutely, Howard Stern. I love him for saying that because if that's what it takes to be woke, I'm so mad that they're burning books because they're trying to hide what they think is inappropriate. They need to go ahead and take that flamethrower and burn all the dirty magazines under their bed that all those men have. Hello, that their children can go and find. Are we serious? And you just because you burn the books, the same books you burn in, in Missouri, you can find in New York. You can find it on the internet. You cannot erase history or books. I was so mad about that because children at this this day and age are already on the internet. They're already seeking and finding what they they want to find. And especially in a diary, when we were talking about Anne Frank, any teenager, that's what a diary is for. It's for secrets. That's what they write right. it for. So everyone just needs to calm down. I was a teacher. I understand. Absolutely. And Christine, I mean, the, the, the irony is in order to burn the books, they have to buy them first. So, so the author already right. got the money. They're actually burning their own money, right. which is weird. And then the idea is they used to say, well, we just don't want these books in schools. But now they're going after libraries, too. And I will note that 40 percent of the book beds are just in the state of Florida. Your thoughts? Right. Absolutely. And Joy, we know how dangerous this is. This has a historical precedent. You know, we can walk through, you know, parts of Berlin. We know that this happened. Um, and so many Republicans are doing this to distract and deflect from the fact that they're voting against people's health care. They're voting against, you know, goods and services that communities need and deserve. And so it's a deflection, but it's also a really serious an insidious way that they're trying to take away knowledge from not just their their populace, but Americans writ large. Uh, and this is why the fight continues, because it, it's not just in one particular state, not just in schools. And we know that they keep expanding uh, their reach. Uh, and it seems as though they're, they're the far ranges of the far right fringes of the party uh, are becoming more and more mainstream by the day. Uh, speaking of far-right fringes, and, you know, the, it hasn't helped Ron DeSantis' platform that have 40 percent of the book bans being in a state. Let's talk about another thing they're trying to ban, which is women having uh, bodily autonomy. I want to play you all, uh, play you two ladies, two really powerful ads um, against such outrages against women in America. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. Daniel Cameron would give us none. I can't believe this. My daughter was raped. And you're not going to do anything? I'm sorry. They'll put us all in prison if we do the procedure. He's right. I'm your Republican congressman. We've banned abortion. No exceptions. She's just 12 years old. I'm not letting you destroy her life. I won the last election, so it's my decision. I'm just going to watch your daughter and make sure she doesn't do anything illegal. Kim Whitley, you're a professional communicator. What do you think of those two ads just as a public communications I love them. 
I wish there were more because it really is, a, you know, when you do shock, just like in stand-up comedy, when you shock the people and you throw it in their face, they're going to listen. They're going to ask, those ads should be everywhere. They should pop up on people's phones, just especially in these uh, certain cities that these uh, politicians think that they can uh, control women and tell us what to do with our bodies. I'd be honest with you, I'd have a different kind of ad. Uh, I'd hate to say this, but I'd have an ad that, because it takes two to make a baby. I'd have ads popping up on men's phones constantly saying, ah, 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 you've had unprotected sex five times this week. We're going to come new to you like a puppy. It would change everything. <laughs> Understand why Very they quickly. Think... Very quickly. Ahead, yes, I, 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 I don't think we can I'm really go on from there. So I'm going to I'm going to switch topics really quickly. I'm going to retain that in my mind for the rest of the night, though. Um, Christina, I want to talk a little bit about Bob Menendez. This is the senator from New Jersey who apparently had like gold bars and five hundred thousand dollars of cash stashed in his house. He is now being indicted by uh, the same Justice Department who Republicans claim are weaponizing the government against Republicans. There are the gold bars. I shall note the lack of Democrats attempting to shut down the Justice Department on his behalf. And the number who, including Eric Holder, former AG, who are calling on him to resign, very different from the way Republicans have reacted to Trump's indictments. Your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, the way Democrats hold one another accountable is very different from the way Republicans hold one another accountable, even when it comes to either sexual misconduct, when it comes to theft or certain indictments. You know, we see Democrats in lockstep saying, listen, if we want to rebuild the trust of the American people. We actually have to root people out and we can't stand uh, to have these people in our party or as our representatives. Republicans, on the other hand, as we have seen time and time again, not only get behind said uh, person who's been either indicted or accused of some really you know, insidious crimes, uh, they double down and triple down. And so the fact that we have the vast majority of the Republican Party supporting uh, 91 times uh, you know, uh, however many times Donald Trump has been 91 indicted, counts. Um, 91 mm -hmm. counts of indictments across four states, uh, and they're doubling down in support. Right. And this is just yeah. the president to say nothing of governors, senators and so many elected officials across the country. Yeah, and I think it's actually 92. Uh, Christina and Kim are sticking around to answer a very important question later in the show. Meanwhile, Pennsylvania uh -oh. Governor Josh Shapiro had a very big victory <laughs> for democracy this week with his automatic voter registration announcement. But here's the question. Did he win the week? But first, I spoke with Michael Harriet, whose fascinating new book fights back against the whitewashing of black history and American history writ large. And so far, it is not banned in Florida, at least not yet. That conversation is next. We are living at a, at a time in America when black history is under assault by many Republican leaders, from banning books written by black authors to eliminating African-American studies courses, even requiring schools in Florida to teach that slavery had its benefits. The right has made whitewashing history central to its political agenda. Well, a new book is flipping the script and giving readers a real history lesson without the white sugar, sugar coating. Michael Harriet's Black AF History corrects the record on the many myths that we've been taught while looking at history through the experiences and perspectives of black Americans. He writes, while it may sometimes seem abrasive, confrontational, and even dismissive, this book recognizes that the only difference between a burglar and a settler is who writes the police reports. 
In fact, the only difference between the black AF version of history and the way America's story is customarily recounted is that whiteness is not the center of the universe around which everything else revolves. And joining me now is Michael Harriet, host of The Griot Daily and author of Black AF History, the unwhitewashed history, the unwhitewashed story of America. Reading is fundamental. Um, <laughs> it's good to see you. Good to see you, too. I, I am today old finding out this is your first book, which is amazing <laughs> to me because you're such a prolific writer on The Griot and everything you read sounds like it came from a book you wrote. <laughs> so uh, congratulations. Thank you. I know personally that it is a great book because I, I did write a blurb for it because it is great. Right. What was the reason that you wanted to write this? Well, I thought that America's history needs to be, uh, you know, a holistic view. And so much of what we read about and how we learn history is from the white perspective. It's really like the people who are against critical race theory don't realize that white is a race and the way that we've been learning history is through a racial lens all this time from the daughters of the uh, Confederacy to Moms for Liberty. We've still been learning history through a white lens and I wanted to offer a more holistic a different perspective on not just black history but American history. American history. I mean from indigenous people I mean from the point of view of the indigenous right everything about American history is the reverse of what because right Right. they are the colonized and from African-Americans as well. I mean, if you're a black person in 1776, you're probably like, I really hope the British win, right? I mean, and I don't think that white Americans generally understand that because that's just not the way we're talking. Right, and even from that perspective, right, from for the indigenous people, from the black people that were here during the Revolutionary War, for instance, right? Yeah. It was just two different kinds of white people fighting. Right. And you wanted to fight for the side that most affected your freedom and your well-being, and it didn't really matter, and that's the kind of perspective that we don't usually learn history from. Let me read a couple quotes from the book. Uh, here's a first quote. You said, like its history, the nation is a mirage. Its greatness is a figment of a collective white imagination that envisions a bright, shining star when there is only a dumpster fire. For a lot, I think, of um, white Americans and people who consider themselves to be very patriotic, just the idea of that is so frightening that I think for a lot of people, they can't confront it. Do you think that this book will frighten people, or, or are you writing it for people who— are black folks who just want the history and who you don't care if it scares people. Well, I don't know how it could be frightening when you've learned the same concepts, just not about white people. Right. Right. right? Like you've learned like Florida, for instance, that like this black people who came over here, didn't know anything until the white people taught right. them. Right. Job. So, so, isn't that a dumpster fire? Isn't that, shouldn't that be frightening? Shouldn't it be frightening that the, all the, for instance, when you're in the third grade, they're all Native Americans. They don't have a specific history right. or a different religion or a different tribe. You know, we have French people and Dutch people and pilgrims with different religions, but all of the black people are just slaves. All the, the indigenous people are just Indians or Native Americans. And the pers- shift in perspective is important for white people to see how they see other people and that, how they teach the history of other people. That's a really good point. I want to read one other quote, which I think is actually a, a brilliant way to explain um, uh, America. And you say Donald Trump is America. And here is how you write it. If one were to create a sentient being out of America's past and present, it would look like Donald Trump. It would hate anyone who was not white. It would believe itself to be an infallible, stable genius. It would hide secrets. It would whitewash its past. It would lie incessantly. It would rip brown babies from their mother's arms. It would criminalize Muslims. It would mirror the intellect and sentiment of the vast majority of people who fill the country from sea to shining sea. Donald Trump is America. To me, that is so smart because I think 
in his mind, he is America, too, right? He would agree with you that America, it, that he embodies what the country is supposed to be. You just said, yeah, you're right. It's yeah, just, he, he, it ain't is, what he, he is right when you think about it, right? When, when you think about the cyclical nature of how this country, you know, attacks any black progress, Right. We had a black president. Then all of a sudden we got a, a orange white supremacist. Right. <laughs> right. And so he is the manifestation of that cyclical nature that we see from Reconstruction, that the segregationist after the civil rights movement and after the black power movement, we got that backlash. And this was another manifestation of that backlash. And Donald Trump kind of embodies all of it for this current current generation. You know, what's interesting. I just came back from um, Ghana and from Spain. The, the, the Spain piece of it is interesting. I, I'm glad I went in that order mm -hmm. because I think it is not just white Americans who have this sort of blinkered view of history that presents themselves as the heroes. I think it's kind of Europe, too. Right. And that's where America came from, obviously. Right. And there is sort of a resistance even there to acknowledge that the reason you have these beautiful castles is the black people that you stole right. it from. The reason that this gold is festooning these churches, well, the gold came from the Gold Coast, it came from slavery. You know, the reason that the, the British royal family are rich, slavery. Do you think that this is a global problem, that we're, we're feeling it in America, but that actually needs to be dealt with by Europe as well? Well, the history, like we always say history is written by the victors, but we have to kind of reimagine what victory is, right? Because it's written by the burglars, like the people who got away with the burglary get to write the police reports. And so the idea that these people are proud of this pan-European ethic that came specifically was created after they realized, oh, we can just enslave the black people. Right. It's something that we have to realize in the way we view the past of world history, right? Like it's like whiteness wasn't a thing until white people created it out of this that gave that let the English inherit the smart stuff that the Greeks did and the Greeks inherit the smart stuff that the Romans did. And they called it whiteness because at the time they weren't that successful at being world rulers or ruling people. They had to go to Africa to get people who knew how to do things, right. how to build things and how to create a country from scratch. Yeah. I mean, the, I love what you do uh, because first of all, you're a brilliant writer. One of the, and I'm going to tell you right now, you need to read this just because the quality of the writing is so incredible. This is one of the greatest writers of his generation, Michael Harrod, brilliant man. Uh, and also hilarious too, because you're going you to laugh. You, you might cry. But you're going to laugh also. Uh, you're great. Michael Harriet. congratulations. The book is called Black AF History, the Unwhitewashed Story of America. We'll be right back. Well, folks, we made it to the end of the week, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Ah, uh, yes. Who won the week? Back with me, Christina Greer and Kim Whitley. Christina, you are the veteran of this game, so I'm going to ask you to start by telling us who won the week. I'm going to say Andre Wagner won the week. He was a Gordon Parks fellow, and I went to his opening first New York show at the Gordon Parks Foundation in Pleasantville, New York, and it was epic. And he was in a conversation with Jamal Shabazz, who's another wonderful, famous photographer. And uh, it was just really inspiring, and it showed all different facets of New York City, past and present. And I'm just filled with artistic inspiration. <laughs> I love that. That is that is dope. I love those pictures. All right, Kim Whitley, it is your turn. My sister, okay, who won that the week? Was cute. All right, <laughs> who won the week? Okay, Christina, that was cute. But my friend, Los Angeles Mayor, Mayor Karen Bass, won the week for me because she implemented a emergency rentals assistance 
program this week for everyone who uh, didn't pay their rent uh, through the pandemic and, of course, the landlords. So that is a win for me. And I want other mayors to follow suit. Yeah. So I, I'm very excited about that. And Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Excellent. 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 All right. Well, my Who Won the Week is the new great communicator of the United States Senate. Now, this senator can not only be glib and hit Republicans where it hurts. Here he's doing that. Oh, my God. Really? Oh, my gosh. You know, oh, it's devastating. (laughs) Don't do it. They're just like, oh, my God, you know. Dogs and cats are living together. And, you know, like I said, aren't there more important things we should be talking about rather than if, if I dress like a slob? <laughs> that, of course, is John Fetterman addressing the impeachment of Joe Biden and also the dress code that he's constantly violating with his like tacky shorts. But he can also be deep. Here's John Fetterman talking about disabled folks and their rights. Here he is. I had a stroke about 18 months ago, you know, and. I have lost my ability to fully process language. Because I live in a political environment, I was ridiculed and made fun of because I wasn't able to process things sometimes or say things things. So I'm so sorry that I'm sure many of you had to go through this kind of thing. The new great communicator, Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, he won the week in my view. Uh, I want to thank uh, my wonderful, wonderful panel, Christina Greer, Kim Whitley. Uh, you guys are great. And uh, please make sure that you catch Kim Whitley on her Two Funny Mamas tour. And as you can see, she is hilarious. She will be in Bethesda, Maryland on Saturday, October 28th. I want tickets. And that is tonight's readout. That's thank right. you, old at ladies. The Theater, oh, thank you. At the Bethesda love- Theater. And I'm going to be there. So. See y'all later. Get the latest updates on this year's high stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at MSNBC.com slash win.